Hey, I want to talk with you today about holy ambition. Could I do that? Holy ambition. And if you say, what, what in the world is that? We'll be patient and we'll talk about it, okay? Holy ambition. There is a study guide in your worship folder. If you want to reach in and pull that out, you'll be able to follow along with me. Those of you who are New Lifers know that we're in this series in the book of Romans, and that's in the New Testament. We've made our way up into chapter 15, and we're on our way to completing that in just a couple of weeks, completing the whole, the whole book. But we're in the middle of chapter 15. Let me read it for you and see if you can pick out Paul's holy ambition, okay? Listen as I read. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I have written to you quite boldly on some points. Yeah, no kidding, right? As if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I've enjoyed my comp- or your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia, he's talking about the churches that were in those regions, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. This is the word of God. I want to repeat verse 20, where Paul wrote, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Holy ambition. I want to ask you today, is there something in your heart... Is there a a ministry idea that when you think about it, excites you? Do you have a passion to make a difference in other people's lives in some way? Do you have a burden to do something for God? Is there a, we'll call it a sanctified longing in your heart, deep in your heart, that you sense could be 
from the Lord. Let that thought simmer in your soul for the next few moments. What we see here in this section of Romans 15 is that the Apostle Paul is starting down the home stretch in this letter. Are you glad? If he was from the south, he'd say, I'm fixing to wrap things up here. There's a shift in his focus. You could probably tell that. Those of you who've been with us throughout this study over the last nine months, we remember that the first, in the first 11 chapters, we saw Paul take us way up, right? Way up high into the stratosphere, up into the mind of God. And he unveiled to us God's thoughts and God's activities and God's plans and purposes and God's desires for the human race and for his people. It's pretty exhilarating way up there to see things from that vantage point, from that perspective. And then in the last three and a half chapters, we've seen Paul challenge us to let God renew our minds, to learn to think more like God thinks about things, about life, about friends, about relationships, about church, about everything. But now, here in the middle of chapter 15, he's shifting, he's moving from teaching theology and applying theology to now opening up his heart and getting personal with us. And that includes sharing his plans, his future plans. He's getting more personal. Here's what we see in this section. First, in verse 14, Paul affirms this congregation's ability, not this congregation, but the church in Rome's ability to minister to each other. They were competent in that. He was confident of their ability. And he says that lest they should think that they had to be reliant upon him for constant, continual, day-by-day guidance, you know, receiving a letter every day with new instructions. He said, no, you're, you're full of God's knowledge. You're, you have the ability to instruct each other in how to live for Christ. That's verse 14. Then in verses 15 and 16, he explains why he's taken the tone in this letter that he's taken with them. And we've seen him give very bold challenges and use some very strong words with them. And so he explains what's underneath his passion in hopes that in hearing that, they'll be more inclined to receive what he says. That's 15 and 16. Then he unfolds for them his own calling from God to be a minister to the Gentiles And he does that so they would realize that his words to them are not just his words, but they are words coming from the Lord to them. That's verse 16. And then in verses 17 through 19, he acknowledges this important truth that anything good that has come from his ministry, any fruitfulness that has come from his ministry, including their growth, their spiritual growth, is primarily due to God working through him. He wants them to know that Jesus should receive all the glory for any spiritual progress they've made because of his ministry, any personal transformation they've experienced. He wants to give credit where credit is due. And so he points them to Jesus and said, you know what, it was God working through me. And then in verses 20 through 22, Paul reveals his holy ambition, which was to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people who've never even heard Jesus' name. We sometimes call that being a frontier missionary. Have you ever heard that term? A frontier missionary. That was Paul's holy ambition. That was his ministry passion. Then in the next few verses, 23 and 24, he gets his smartphone out and pulls up his Expedia app and he shares with them his upcoming travel itinerary, right? (laughs) Including his planned trip to visit them, spend time with them. Encourage them and then have them assist him on his way to his next ministry assignment. 
Then in verses 25 through 27, he informs them of the mission that he's on currently, that he's taking this gift, this monetary gift that he's received from these churches in Asia, and he's taking that gift to the saints, the believers in Jerusalem. Evidently, there was a famine going on in the land, and they were lacking some basic necessities. And so he'd received an offering here, and he was hand-delivering it to those Christian believers, followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And to him, that was the, the Gentiles' practical way of acknowledging the spiritual investment that the church in Jerusalem had made in them because it all started there. It all started in Jerusalem. And all of the Christian movement uh, moved out from there in kind of a ripple effect. And then in the last two verses, 28 and 29, he shares how he hopes to fulfill his holy ambition by traveling across Europe to another country called Spain. Did you catch that? To preach the gospel there to the Spaniards who had at that point never heard about Jesus so that they too would have the opportunity to believe and be saved. Well, as I read this section, I'm, I'm struck by several things about the writer, about the Apostle Paul that I picked up on here. Obviously, this was a unique man, and he had a very unique calling, didn't he? He had a distinct role in God's big redemptive plan. And from reading in the book of Acts and from reading some of his other letters we have in the New Testament, we know his story, don't we? Do you know the story of Paul? Well, he wasn't initially Paul, was he? He was who? Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And we know that he was an ambitious young Jewish man and that uh, he was so filled with religious fervor and zeal that he entered into the religious system of Judaism. He entered into training there and he, he received extensive religious training in the, the tenets of Judaism, and he excelled in it. He rose to the top of his class. He was a straight-A student, so to speak, and as a result, he enjoyed an elevated status among his peers. Eventually, he achieved the status of being a Pharisee. In fact, he says in Philippians, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like I was at the top of that tier as well. An A-lister, I guess you could call him. And then this man came onto the scene, Jesus of Nazareth. Did you know that Saul and Jesus were contemporaries? They, their lives overlapped, and Jesus came on the scene, and we know that Jesus stirred things up by making some startling claims and doing some startling things. And so Saul, Saul of Tarshish, decided that Jesus and his little band of followers were actually a threat to the religious system that he was a part of. They were... A, he perceived them to be a threat to the status quo, and so he turned against Jesus. And maybe he was thinking, well, you know, that, that guy hasn't been trained in our schools. He's not been educated in our seminaries. He doesn't have credentials from the right institutions. He's not one of us. He's not one of the guys. And those crowds that were always drawn to him, well, he would have thought they're just a bunch of simpletons anyway. They've been duped by him, by Jesus' clever oratory and by those so-called miracles that he had allegedly performed. And so Saul, Saul saw this new upstart Christian movement as a, a threat to everything that he held dear. And after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was executed, which Saul no doubt was supportive of, it became his ambition to completely eliminate this growing threat. And so what did he do? He went on a mission to identify and track down and round up all the Christians that he could find and do what? Throw them into jail. 
in an attempt to snuff out this movement right as it was getting started. And that was what he was doing on that day. That day, the day that Saul's life got totally upended. He was on the road to the city of Damascus in Syria, going to go find some more Christians to incarcerate. And what happened on the way? He had a very unexpected encounter with a man that he thought was dead. Traveling there on that road, he was met by the one that he had been hell-bent on erasing every memory of. He met Jesus, the risen living Lord, Jesus Christ, arranged this meeting with Saul of Tarsus, who was knocked off of his horse. There were a few poignant words exchanged between the two, and Saul was left laying on his back, blinded, and totally shaken to the core of his being by this encounter. His whole world got totally turned upside down that day. A few days later, one of Jesus' followers named Ananias met with Paul, and he delivered a message to him from God. And he said, Saul, God has a new mission for you. It's the antithesis of the mission that you have been on. A few days later, Saul of Tarsus received a new name, Paul, to signify that he was a a new person. He was now a forgiven man, a redeemed man. And with the same vigor and the same zeal with which he had previously persecuted the church of Jesus, Paul now set out on his new mission with a holy ambition burning in his heart to exalt Jesus, to proclaim to the Gentile peoples the saving grace of the one that he had used to despise. He knew Jesus had shown him mercy, right? Jesus had been merciful to him, gracious to him, had saved him, had transformed him, and set him on a new course, 180 degrees opposite of where he'd been just a few weeks earlier. And so Paul was exceedingly grateful, and just the kind of person he was, he went all in. He was an all-in sort of guy. Many scholars believe, based on a statement he makes in Galatians 1.17, That the first thing Paul did after his conversion was enter into a season of intense training with Jesus Christ himself, somewhere out in the, the Arabian desert. Imagine that. Imagine enrolling in the school of the gospel and the professor's name is Jesus of Nazareth. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, being given revelations from him that would blow your mind. That's what happened, we believe, with Paul. And when his training was completed, and he probably excelled in that too, right? Now full of new understanding, with a fire in his belly, Paul became an itinerant evangelist. He became a preacher, he became a church planner, traveling around all the regions of modern day Europe and Asia, telling people about Jesus, people who didn't know anything about Jesus. So here was Paul's strategy. He'd go into a town, he'd scout it out, he'd find a place, a public place where people gathered together. And had conversation, kind of that third space idea. And when given the opportunity, he would stand up and he would proclaim his message, his message about Jesus. And anyone who responded positively to his message, he would then gather together into little congregations to begin meeting together. And he would stay there for a season, maybe a few weeks, maybe a number of months. He would train the people, 
deeper in the truths of the gospel and the way of Jesus to help them grow in their faith, to help them mature in their faith. And then when he felt they had their legs sufficiently under them, that congregation, when he sensed it was God's timing, he would then turn their care over to a local pastor, a local shepherd, so to speak, and a team of elders selected by him and confirmed by the people. He would turn them over to their care and then he would say goodbye to them, sometimes with tears. And he would move on to the next place and he would do the same thing over and over and over again. Later on, he would make his way back through those towns and he would visit these churches again to strengthen them in their faith. He also wrote some letters, didn't he? Letters that addressed different issues that he'd heard about in these churches He wrote letters that offered further encouragement and further instruction to them. As we know, many of those letters landed in our New Testament. And so we have the letter to the Philippians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Colossians and so forth. He was a unique man. He had some unique experiences. He was an apostle, a capital A apostle in the truest sense of the word. And as I read this passage in Romans 15, four things about This Apostle Paul struck me in particular. To me, these four things seem to be essential for carrying out a holy ambition, for fulfilling a holy ambition, not only for Paul, but for you and for me. Here they are. He knew who he was. He knew what God had called him to do. He was committed to fulfilling that calling, and he knew where the power was came from he knew who he was he knew what God had called him to do his mission he was committed to fulfilling that calling that's intentionality with his life and he knew where the power source was could I just talk about those four things in Paul's life for a moment Paul knew who he was Paul knew who he was he tells us here in the first few verses that we read that that he saw himself as three things he saw himself as a priest and as a preacher, and as a pioneer. Yeah, in verse 16, he refers to himself as a priest of sorts, not like a priest in the Old Testament, but a priest in the sense of being one who was to present an offering to God. And what was the offering that Paul had in his heart to present to God? Was it an animal? Was it a goat, or a bull, or a lamb? No, it was a people, a Gentile people, redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He saw himself as a priest wanting to offer this people to God as an acceptable sacrifice. He also saw himself as a preacher because in his heart there was a message that was burning inside of him and he was convinced people got to hear this. People need to hear this message. It's the only way that they'll ever be right with God. And his message never changed. Could I just, um, would you listen to the message for a few moments? Many of you know it. You've heard it perhaps since childhood. To others of you, it's maybe newer. But I just want you to bask in grace for the next few moments. Because Paul's message was this. God existed in eternity past in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they realized they had more love to share with more people. And it was decided in the councils of eternity past that it would be the Son who would come 
to earth. The Son of the eternal God, leave heaven, come to earth, take on human flesh, be born as a baby in Bethlehem's manger. It was all planned out eons ago. That he would grow up in a tiny remote hamlet in the Middle East. That he would live 33 years on this planet and he would live the life that we are all called to live. The beautiful, perfect life of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus lived that life. Amen? He lived it perfectly. He deserved life as a result of that. But in God's perfect plan, Jesus then died for us in our place as a substitute. He died in the place of humanity. He received the judgment, the righteous judgment from the Father that all of humanity deserves for our rebellion and sin and unrighteousness. Even though he was pure, he took our sins upon himself, served our death sentence for us to pay for all of our unrighteousness. But Paul loved preaching about what happened three days later. He loved proclaiming the resurrection that he didn't stay dead, that by divine power Jesus was raised from the grave, victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And then after 50 days, he ascended back into heaven to prepare a place for his beloved people. And now Jesus, as the living Lord, the risen Lord, comes to people and offers them forgiveness of all of their sins, offers them eternal life and a place in the family of God for all who will hear the good news and who will forsake any thought of being able to make themselves right in the sight of God, but will cast themselves wholly in faith on Jesus Christ himself. By faith alone, this wonderful offer is a gift. Paul loved proclaiming it. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace from the heart of God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough to receive it on that basis. You must only receive it by faith as a gift from God. That was his message. It's called the gospel. And he was laser focused, laser focused on that message throughout all of his ministry. He never got distracted from it. And so Paul saw himself as a priest offering the Gentile people to God as an acceptable sacrifice. He saw himself as a preacher of the good news. And third, he saw himself as a pioneer as one who is blazing new trails for the gospel, going to places where no one has gone before with the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ and specifically going to places where Jesus had not been named. People didn't know even his name. So Paul was a man who knew who he was. Do you see this? His identity was crystal clear in his mind. And then, second, he knew what God had called him to do. In his case, his God-ordained mission had been revealed to him through that other person, that man named Ananias. He never lost sight of that calling. He affirms it right here in Romans 15, many years after he first received it. He speaks of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So he knew who he was and he knew what he was about. He knew, he knew what his mission was, to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. He never veered off that mission to the left or to the right. And third, Paul was committed to fulfilling that calling. It was his holy ambition to proclaim Christ 
in predominantly Gentile cities where Christianity was unknown. Virgin territory for the gospel, you could say. Unreached people groups. Frontier missions. That was his holy ambition. And you can see from this part of the letter that he felt he had completed it, at least to some degree. He wrote here, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Then he says, But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, I will come and visit you. And maybe someone read that and thought, what? No more places to work, Paul? You all done? What he meant was no more unreached people groups in that region. Because by that time in the first century, Christian churches had been planted all throughout that region. And so the mission of proclaiming the gospel was now turned over to those churches, those congregations. So Paul was done, right? Time to retire. Time to lay out on the beaches of the Mediterranean. Sip adult beverages, soak in the rays, play golf every day, ease into retirement. Not for this man. Why? Because he still had a holy ambition burning in his heart. He realized there's yet another region, another untapped region. Kind of made its way into its crosshairs. It was Spain. And he's like, I want to go to Spain. I've heard there's no gospel witness there in Spain yet. So... He writes these Romans and he says, right now I'm headed to Jerusalem to deliver that gift, that monetary gift that I collected from the churches over in Asia. I'm I'm taking it over to the the needy saints in in Jerusalem, but I'm going to head to Spain after that and I'm, I'm seeing on my GPS here that on the way to Spain, on that blue line, Rome is right on the path. And so I'm going to stop in, I'm going to see you, beloved Roman believers, I'm going to visit with you and spend some time encouraging you. And then I hope you'll encourage me by giving me some provisions for my trip to Spain. Maybe some food, maybe some funding, and certainly some encouragement in prayer. Because he had a fire burning in his heart to preach the gospel in Spain to people who did not yet know Jesus. So is there any doubt here that Paul knew who he was? He knew what God had called him to do? Is there any doubt that he was committed to fulfilling that mission until his last breath on this earth. It's like he was saying, I'm all in for the whole journey. And then finally, the fourth thing I have noted is that Paul knew where the power came from. He knew where the power came from. You know, somebody with as much ministry success as Paul might have been tempted to think what? I'm pretty awesome. (laughs) Might have been tempted to exalt himself, to pat himself on the back, to take some bows. I mean, After all, I wrote half the New Testament and started, you know, dozens of these churches and things. But you know what? Paul knew where the power came from. He knew what caused people to believe his message. He knew what brought about conversion to Christ. He knew why people's lives had been changed and transformed. Sure, he had a part. He worked hard, right? He wasn't lazy. He labored at it. But he knew human effort alone cannot accomplish these things. Cannot accomplish the salvation of so many souls, the planting of so many churches, the transformation of so many lives, the raising up of so many pastors. In verse 17, he tells this church at Rome, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. 
So yes, he worked hard. But he knew it's God working in me and through me. He never lost sight of that and it kept him humble, don't you think? Along with his thorn in the flesh, which was some sort of physical infirmity that limited him, this knowledge that it was God, it's God, it's God, it's not me, I'm just God's instrument, I'm just God's agent, he's working through me to impact people's lives. That kept him humble. Listen to what he says in some of the other letters he wrote to other churches that kind of underscore this point from 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Therefore, oh, I'm sorry, for I am the least of the apostles. How's that for humility? And do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He knew what Jesus had brought him out of. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. I think he's talking about the other apostles. I worked hard, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see it? I'm working hard, but God's the one doing the work. It's a beautiful synergy there, divine synergy. Colossians 1.28, we see it again. We proclaim him, speaking of Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present, there's this idea of presenting an offering to God of a people, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy. It's him. His energy that works in me. His energy which so powerfully works in me. You see this? Paul knew where the power came from. He worked hard, he labored, but he realized it was God inside of him who was supplying the energy and the power and the perseverance and the endurance and the influence and the impact. It's God. Any Christian minister in his right mind has that attitude. This is God. (laughs) If there's anything good at all that happens through my ministry, it's God through me, in me. This knowledge kept Paul humble. It kept him dependent upon God every day. God, I need you. I need you. Work through me. Minister through me. I think that attitude of dependence is why God used Paul so much. So Paul knew who he was. He knew what God had called him to do. He was committed to fulfilling that calling, no matter the cost, and he knew where the power came from to carry out that mission. So that was Paul. He was a unique man with a very unique calling. I'm not one, listen, listen carefully, okay? I'm not one who believes we should automatically assume that we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of every Bible character that we come across in the Bible. To strive to do exactly what they did. I'm not one who believes we should automatically do that or think that way. Because in some cases, their particular calling was unique. I think about Moses, I think about Abraham, I think about David, I think about Paul here. They had a unique calling that wasn't meant for me or you. Does that make sense? They were given a special role in God's plan. I think it takes real discernment to understand what about a Bible character we are supposed to imitate and what about them was unique to them. And we say that was their calling, that was for them, that's not my calling. I think about Jesus. Talk about holy ambition set his face, it says, like a flint towards Jerusalem. He would not be deterred from his mission of redeeming a people for himself through a cross and an empty tomb. And yet, 
you can't die on the cross for somebody's sins. I can't die on the cross for somebody's sins. Much of Jesus' mission was unique to him. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? We've got to discern what part is for us and what part is no. That was unique. And Paul's unique calling was to go and proclaim the gospel where the name of Jesus had not, not ever been spoken. Nobody even knew about Jesus. That became his holy ambition. And yes, while it's true that all believers are called to make Christ known in our own contexts, all believers in Christ are called to spread his good news, we shouldn't suppose that every Christian has the same calling that Paul had. But some do. Some believers have been called to go where the gospel of Christ has not been preached, to be a frontier missionary, to go to unreached people groups. And whenever someone among us hears that call and heeds that call and says yes and gets prepared and equipped and trained and does that, we celebrate that, don't we? I'm going to mention the young couple in a few moments. And just kind of as an aside, did you know there are still people in the world who are unreached? Take a look at this map courtesy of the the Joshua Project, who does great work in keeping the church informed about the progress of the Great Commission. And the the regions there that are in green indicate that there's this pretty significant gospel presence there. there. There's a lot of believers in those areas. And I even see in our own United States, it's all green. I wonder about that, truthfully. I think it's changing. And the yellow is there's there is a gospel presence. It's not a majority. It's not overwhelming. But there are church, Christian churches and Christian believers there. But then in the red, that's the areas that we would call the unreached people groups. And that's actually a technical term. It means there are less than 2% of the population that are Christians. And in some of those red regions, there aren't any Christians yet. There are whole people groups. Can you believe this? In the 21st century that have not heard the name of Jesus Christ. You can see most, most of that red is within what's called the 10 40 window and there's a concerted effort in the christian church to send people to the 1040 window to work with unreached people groups 865 million muslims 550 million hindus 275 million buddhists 150 million chinese 140 million people who are parts of tribal groups who are unreached with the gospel if you want a big number of unreached people, it's over 3 billion people who still don't have a credible witness of Christ and the gospel in their lives. Anywhere from three to 7,000 people groups on the planet still unreached out of a total of 16,000 people groups. The mission still exists. Praise God for those who go. For many of us, though, our calling is different than Paul's. Our calling is unique. It's distinct to us. And so I thought, you know, I want to take those four qualities that Paul had, which I believe are applicable to us, and apply them now personally to you and to me. And so I'll form them into questions and ask them like this. Do you know who you are? That's the identity question, and the answer is not, well, I'm Jim, of course I know who I am, or I'm Mary. I'm talking about, do you know who you are in the kingdom of God? Paul said, I'm a priest, I'm a preacher, I'm a pioneer. What are you? 
If you have a clear bead on your identity in the kingdom of God, that's the identity question. Second, do you know what God has called you to do? Do you have a bead on your particular unique calling? And that's the, that's the matter of mission. Mission. Do you know your mission? Your mission. And have you committed your life to fulfilling that calling? And that's the matter of being intentional with your life, right? Being deliberate, like aiming your life at something that matters. And then finally, are you aware, are you keenly aware of where the strength comes from? Of where the power comes from to fulfill and carry out that mission? And that's the question of power source. So in short, I could summarize it like this. Do you, like Paul, have a holy ambition burning in your heart? And are you committed to carrying out in your life through relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Would you take a moment and think about that? If you flip your notes over, and I know most of you already did, there's a little table on the back to help, kind of help you in this regard. Take a look at that. There are those four questions, and then the middle column is what Paul, how Paul would have responded, but in the far right column, I, I, what, what would you write in those boxes about yourself? Who are you in the kingdom of God? What's your mission? What has God called you to do, personally and individually, that's unique to you? How committed are you? Like on a scale of one to ten, how committed are you to aiming your life at that and going for it? And then... To what extent do you understand where the power comes from to carry that out? You know, when I think about this, I, I think about some of you. I think about new lifers who, who do have a clear bead on their unique calling from God. Because for you, that's become your holy ambition. And so for so many of you, you're getting after it and you're loving it. And so I'm going to mention some names. Is that Okay. If I mention you, just relax. <laughs> New lifers who have a holy ambition burning in their heart and they're moving towards fulfilling it. I think about Tammy, who has a fire burning in her heart to find ways to help young girls escape from the scourge, the evil of sexual slavery. And others among you that I'm looking at right now, I know have a similar burden and passion. I think about Jessica. Jessica, who makes her way over to that agency in our city where little babies are pulled from their mother's bodies and their lives are snuffed out. It's not e she, has a, she has a disability. It's not easy for her to get there, but she gets there and she stands there and as pregnant young women come by, she pleads with them to consider the fact that there are other options. Other options than taking the child's life. I think about Don, who along with his family... It's a unique thing, gathers a bunch of kids every week onto the court where they live and church kids and neighborhood kids and he pulls all this stuff out of his garage, big tires and things and he's got this very strenuous regimen that he puts these kids through and he, he gets them away from their phones and away from their tablets for a while, good thing, right? Gets them working and sweating and having fun and getting physically fit, all with a view towards helping them understand the beauty of connection with each other and the goodness of God's love for them. Holy ambition. I think of Bill and Claire, who for decades, not years, but decades, have devoted their lives to helping married couples grow in intimacy with each other and to endure hard times 
by keeping their focus on Christ. I think about my friend Ben here, who has become aware, kind of had this epiphany. He said, Steve, I'm realizing that my story is not my story. My story of brokenness, of being broken through hardship and trial, and then being restored and being transformed by Christ, that story is not my own story. The rights to my story, he said, have been purchased by my Lord. And he intends to use my story to bring hope to other people who've been despairing. I think of Craig and Paul, two men in our church who have a burden for people whose lives get totally upended and disrupted after a tornado rolls through or a hurricane and their, their house, you know, gets demolished or the roof is, comes off and natural disaster has struck. And these two guys have recruited a team, a ready relief team of new lifers who kick into action whenever that happens. And they just sent... Uh, a team to Dayton a couple weeks ago to help in the effort there. On this Father's Day, I think of my friend in this church, Andrew. Andrew, who he and his family were at our house earlier last year, and we were having a good time. All of a sudden, he pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket. And he says, hey, would you look this over for me? He said, I've had this idea brewing in my mind for quite a while. I want to see what you think about it. Because I think that young husbands like me, he said, need accountability for loving our wives the way that Christ has called us to love our wives and parenting our kids, fathering our children the way that Christ has called us to father our children. I think we need accountability to intentionally guide our kids in the way of Christ. And so me and a few other guys from New Life have a burden to form a group, like an accountability group, to come together and challenge each other in these areas so we can grow. And he said, I I sketched it out. Here's a plan. I'm calling it Man Up. Love that. He said, would you read it over and Tell me what you think about it. And I did. I read it over and I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, if you you feel like you need permission, you got it, you know. And now there's 20, 25, 30 young husbands coming together, challenging each other, texting each other. How you doing? How's your walk with Christ? How you doing at loving your wife? You know, what's going on with your kids? I could see it in his eyes. Holy ambition. I think of Bill and Lynn whose hearts ache to see people delivered from chronic distress, physical distress, emotional distress, spiritual distress, through a specialized prayer ministry that's on a whole nother level, spiritual warfare type praying to help people get freed up from the things that bind them. I think about John and Jeff in our church, whose hearts burn with a holy ambition to help men come alive to God, and especially in that area of breaking free from the grip of the addiction of porn. I think of a gal, I was interviewing her and her husband just the other night, getting ready to join New Life. And uh, in their membership interview that I was privileged to conduct, she looked at me and she said, working with little children in the church, Steve, is my passion. You can't keep me from working and sharing the love of Jesus with little children. I said, I won't, you know, I, won't. I will not stand in your way. If this is your holy ambition, I'll, I'll fan that into flames. I could go on about others, and I will. I think of Darren and Joanna, a young married couple with two kids of their own. 
whose hearts burn with a desire to serve other families who encounter an unexpected crisis and need someone to care for their kids for a season while they get their legs under them and get, get stable again. It could be a couple of days, it could be a couple of weeks, it could be months. They have their own kids, but they've had other children, other people's children living with them in their home while their parents get things sorted out. It's a ministry called Safe Families, and I love their holy ambition, don't you? And it's spreading, being the hands and feet of Jesus. I think of Sharon who can always, along with her husband Bill, who can always be found serving families whose lives, whose family life is impacted by a disability. Somebody in the family has a disability. There's special needs there. And you will always find Sharon serving in the ministries of Johnny and friends and here in our own Me and My Friends ministry, along with, along with Bill, giving of themselves to serve and bless that very special group of people. And I do think of Charlie and Danny, another young couple who have given their lives to minister the gospel to unreached people groups. They heard the call. They left jobs, homes, family, friends. They gathered up their kids, moved into that red area in Southeast Asia to spread the love and truth of Christ and the gospel to peoples who who don't know Christ, some of whom are hostile to Christianity. I just got his most recent newsletter this week, and it's, it's in code, it's cryptic, because there are people watching the communications who would love to just round, out, round up people like this and haul them off and never see them again, right? And, and in this newsletter, he said, he said, I want you to know, as I'm ministering to these people who, who never have heard the gospel, I can't imagine my life doing anything else. It's their calling. That's their holy ambition. And I could talk about dozens and dozens and dozens more of you who have burning in your heart a holy ambition to do something for God with your one and only life. You want your life to count beyond just this life, but into eternity. It burns in you. You long to be do, do something for God that impacts the kingdom of God to make a difference. Paul had a, a holy ambition other people have a holy ambition. I have a holy ambition. My question for you today is, do you? Do you have a holy ambition? And if not, could I encourage you to begin asking God to place one in your heart? He loves doing that. You know, when I thought about my, my own holy ambition, I don't think I'm overstating it. I'm not sure that, that my life would seem to be worth living for me if I didn't have something that had its hooks in me that was drawing me out of myself and focusing my attention on other people as a mission in life. I'm not sure I'd want to live without having that, that calling, that mission. And I hope and pray that for you. Maybe you're one here, and, and you used to. Like, I'm talking to you, and you're thinking, yeah, back in my 20s, I was on fire. <laughs> or in my 30s, you know, something had its hooks in me, and I was ready to go, but somewhere along the line... I don't know, it didn't happen, people talked you out of it, the fire died down, the dream died, and you kind of let it go. And I would just look at you in the eye and say, oh, don't let that happen. Ask God to reignite it. Maybe, maybe the dream needs to be reformed. Maybe God needs to reshape it some, modify it some, but he's got something for you that only someone like you could do with your personality and your giftings and your experiences in life. Ask God to reignite it 
in you if it's truly from him. If you're somebody who does have that ache in your soul to make a difference for God, I would encourage you to take a step in that direction today. Just take a step. Might be a little step. Might be a big step. Quantum leap. A little step you could take would be to tell somebody else about it. And not just keep it to yourself, but to, you know, a trusted, confidant type person to say, you know what, I've been, something's been brewing in my heart for a while. Could I just share it with you so you can kind of nurture it along in prayer with me? That would be a step, wouldn't it? I encourage you to do that, because that would be a step of faith. Maybe you think you know what your holy ambition, your divine calling is, but you need some confirmation from God before stepping out. I understand that. And I would encourage you to, to in a few moments, come and come to a prayer partner on, on either side of me and just ask them to pray that over you. Would, you. would you pray that God would confirm to me that this is indeed what he's calling me to do? I got something stirring up inside. I just need to know before I take some steps. And our prayer partners would love to pray that over you. That God would confirm it. If you're one here today who's realizing that you actually have never yet truly, sincerely received Jesus' offer of salvation, that grace gift that I was talking about earlier of forgiveness through his death, through his resurrection for you, then I would also encourage you, come and tell a prayer partner that. I'm just not sure. And they will pray over you and they will guide you in how to put your faith and trust in Christ. I want to pray over you right now. Would you, um, if, if God had something in this sermon for you today, would you just lift your hand so I could just see there's something in there that I needed to hear today, something from me? You can put your hands down. Let me pray for you. Lord, first off, Lord Jesus, thank you for being a man on a mission. Thank you for paying the price to fulfill your holy ambition. We are forever grateful to you for that. And Lord, for these in this room today, if there are any who have not yet placed their faith in Christ, transferred their trust from themselves to you, Would you give them faith right now to believe that it's all true, that you did all that for them and that you want them? And Lord, for others in this room who need confirmation or who need clarification on what their their holy ambition is to be, would you be so good to them as a father to provide that for them? Maybe even today. Lord, it's my hope and dream that maybe five years from now or ten years from now I'll get an email or a letter or a communication of some sort from a person who says, you know what, I'm on mission with Jesus, I know what it is, I'm doing it, and when I think about it, I trace it back to that Sunday in June of 2019 when you were talking about holy ambition. In that moment, I said yes to God. And now look what he's done. Look what he's done in me. Look what he's done through me. May it be so. May it be so. May many lives be touched because it's you working in us, Lord. For your glory, I pray. Amen.